Check the program. 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 Welcome to Check the Program, a kitchen table podcast by a group of journalists who saw a need for more arts coverage in Victoria and decided to do something about it. I'm Melanie Trompover. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm John Trolfo. I'm Amanda Farrell Lowe. And I'm Brianna Bach. And we have a jam-packed podcast today um, with lots of reviews at uh, William Head on Stage. We'll be talking about the Emerald City Project, Atomic Vaudeville's Rocky Horror Picture Show, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer parody, Once More with Feeling, we have Pacific Opera Victoria's Il Tritico, and um, and we're also going to chat a little bit about the ongoing challenge of art space and uh, housing costs in the city, because that's kind of been bubbling up in the news. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge that Victoria occupies the traditional territories of the Lekwungen peoples, including what is now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. As settler people, we have the privilege to live, work, and create on these lands, and much of the art we're discussing has also been created and performed here. And uh, I had the opportunity to do uh, territorial acknowledgement recently, and I thought as part of that, I would look back at my own family's history and the impact they've had on the country as well. So my ancestors first came to the land we now call Canada in 1812. And uh, during that time, they moved across the traditional territories of the St. Lawrence Iroquois, the Assiniboine, uh, the Stolo, and the Kwantlen nations until I finally came as an uninvited guest to these lands over 25 years ago. And I thought it was kind of interesting to look back, instead of just looking at settlement patterns, to look at those possible colonial impact patterns that my family had had as well. So, yeah. yeah. Good exercise. Yeah. And it was, you know what, it was fascinating to look at a map of all the traditional nations across Canada and then try and figure out where my people had crossed and what was going on at those times. It was a very interesting exercise. Mm -hmm. Let's start with something great. Um, uh, Sarah, how about Il Tritico? Sure, yes. Um, That's Pacific Opera Victoria's season opener. Um, A Puccini trio of small operas, short operas, each about 45 minutes in length. And really a just jam-packed night of everything opera um, over the topness, <laughs> which I, I feel like Pacific Opera Victoria has really leaned in to all the, the schmaltz, the drama, the, the bigness of opera, and I really love that, especially in their big shows at the Royal. So Il Tritico definitely pleases. Um, it's uh, definitely a yeah, maximum opera. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so it starts, and, and one interesting thing about this one is that the pieces are not always presented together, and I think they've only been staged together in Canada once, like a hundred and something years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. And is it yeah. just the length, sheer length? It's the length, and it's just, no, I think it's doing three different operas, mm. like having three different productions, three different stages, very different styles in the music. It's a lot. And uh, they do it very well. The stage, staging and the sets are some of the best part of the show. I guess like POV is well positioned to do that, right? Just with how they produce opera here. Like I think because they do a lot of their own production. Yeah, they build their own sets. Mm -hmm. They quite often build their own costumes. They've got the space to do it. And it's incredibly clever. Like the, so it starts out with um, Il Il Tabaro, the cloak. This is like a very dark and gloomy tragedy. 
set in 1918 along the Seine and um, sort of post-war um, France. And uh, so it starts with this sort of boat in front and uh, lots of smoke in this dark gloomy convent in the back and a very tragic love story. Um, so it's quite heavy and dark. And then as it shifts to the next story, um, which originally was not set in this time period, they, they sort of switched and Puccini switched them, but director uh, Glenis Leishon kind of connects them by setting them, setting them all together. As it shifts, the lights come up, a beautiful hedge comes down to cover the convent, and it just sort of changes the mood, and the mm. boat sort of floats away. Um, cool. so, so they're sort of connected in space. And um, set and costume designer Pam Johnson did an, an excellent, excellent job of that. Um, one of my favorite names in opera is back, Aviva Fortunata. Oh, <laughs> perfect name. <laughs> it was in yeah. last year. Um, what an incredible voice. She has one of those voices that... When it, like, punches, it just blows you away. She's just got such a, a big voice, and it's just beautiful. Like, it's really rich. Um, so she was wonderful in, in all the roles she played throughout all three operas. But particularly in, um, in the second one, Sor Angelica, in which she plays a nun who um, is in, in agony because she's been forced to give up her son and then finds out her son has died and um, wants to take her own life and in but also is you know in a moral conflict because of that and in that moment the Virgin Mary comes from above <laughs> this is the high this is the total drama I'm talking about and it was beautifully done I was just like what is happening on stage right now like is this real is this special effects I don't know I won't tell you what is what but <laughs> it was just an incredible visual moment and the music was quite beautiful. And apparently this is the one piece that often gets left out. Mm. And yeah. the two were presented together. So, yeah, which which would be a shame. It was just done very well. The um, ensemble singing was excellent. The final piece is one called uh, Gianni's Kiki. And it's um, sort of a farce within the, within the play. Um, a small traveling group of actors are performing for the wounded soldiers at the convent. Mm. And it's pretty silly. Um... It wasn't my favorite because, yeah, I just, it, it was fun. It was fun. It definitely gave some levity to the night. Um, but I think everyone, and myself included, were all waiting for, like, the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful arias in opera, um, O Mio Bambino Caro. And uh, that was just... Does that sung. come from this? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh. So. And from the third, like, from the farce? Yeah. Huh. And it's yeah, sort of this odd moment. And it just is like... You can hear there were sighs. You're oh. like, oh, <laughs> what we waited for. Yeah, at uh, the beginning or the at the end of the song. Um, it was kind of at the near the end, but it was just like so delightful. I would love to hear that song oh. sung over and over again. So, yeah, and that was um, soprano Lara, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Sorry, Lara Siekovitz, I guess. So yeah. Same cast for all three. Uh, yeah, oh. mostly, but they, they interchange lead roles. Oh, oh. So, yeah, just by every, I feel like I've, so many things I've seen with Pacific Opera Victoria lately, the um, sort of larger productions and then the smaller ones at the Bowman Center have been all really, really clever and really excellent. So, mm -hmm. Well, there's cool. lots of great buzz around this one, that's mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when yeah. does it run to? 
um, until the 27th, October, let me just make sure about that, for sure, October 27th, yep, October 27th is the last night, and yeah, it's a good show, get out there, it is long, two intermissions, Brings one for out. wine, and then the second for chocolate, <laughs> <laughs> keep it, keep you going, offered by the venue, <laughs> yeah, you have to bring it up. <laughs> So let's go from a fully professional production at uh, Pacific Opera to uh, uh, not a fully professional production out at William Head on stage. Brianna, what did you think of uh, the Emerald City Project? Yes, well, I thought it was really good. And uh, this was my first time going to a prison play. Um, I went in completely uh, dark to what was going on. And it was just... I don't even know where to start because it just from right away my expectations were on their head because uh, the uh, everything was set up like around the stage and like that um in that sort of high school gym sort of area mm-hmm. and it was and like the everything comes in and it's just like so so the actors sort of have to like act like to an audience surrounding them not mm-hmm. like directly in front of them mm-hmm. but it was so amazing like they could you could tell what was going on without seeing like a character's face like dead on. There's lo- there are great chances of there. There are great moments of like really good physical acting, hmm. which was like I, I I always appreciate that, and just like interesting lighting, um, some great choreography, um, and just just the story of just like it's never too late to try and be better, which I think takes on a different meaning. Uh, with the context that these are inmates. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so they're riffing on The Wizard of Oz? Is yes. that the idea of the show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the idea is that there are two rival gangs on Kansas Avenue called the Flying Monkeys <laughs> and the Lions. No, come on, <laughs> Yeah, really. That's great. Yeah. No, and um, Kansas Avenue is currently, um, there are currently condos being built in the area. Huh. Yeah. And no one's happy with that, of course. Um, it's, a, it's a very Victoria issue, as I've, I've learned. <laughs> and I'm just sort of learning, like, times are changing, and then Toto, who was once a flying monkey, comes back in from prison after murdering a lion, and just saying, like, no, we should come together and save our home. And there, there's these ideas of, like, home, which, and there's this great scene where it's just, like, these characters are given, like, this very small model of a house, and they're just told about what they think about home, how they ended up where they are. Mm. And just, yeah, it's just one of those moments where you just wonder, like, how close to life is is this? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this being drawn from? Yeah. Did you stay for the talkback? I did stay yeah. for the talkback. And did how was the audience, I guess, engaging with those themes with the, with the performers? I th- they were really engaged in them. A lot of people were asking, like, uh, since it was a very collaborative piece, mm-hmm. um, with like snafu theater mm-hmm. and just like what were some of the questions i'm trying to remember oh one of them was like um did you in this experience did you um well did you enjoy it but did you gain a, an appreciation for the arts and do you want to keep pursuing that mm-hmm. and there were a lot of people who were acting for the first time there mm-hmm. was uh one actor who was usually like in the background but was as he put it forced onto the stage <laughs> And actually, it was really interesting to see people act who weren't actors in a way. Mm-hmm. We're kind of, but in this weird sort of like close to life thing, where it's just like, um, that's like that's kind of like that's my dad kind of feel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like just very casual, very. 
I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I find those kind of performances out of William Head, they often bring, you know, they bring a sense of intimacy because of the, the forced intimacy of yeah. the venue. Mm-hmm. But then there's also that, that sense of realism in what you're seeing and whether or not they're trained actors, uh, you, you really believe what yeah. you're seeing mm-hmm. on stage. Yeah. And uh, I've certainly over the years found the, the Who's shows are, are certainly comparable to the best community productions I see in mm-hmm. town. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and they definitely nail that sort of, like, gang sort of bro culture mm-hmm. and just sort of, like, hang out with your buddies, drinking beer, mm-hmm. and everything else on the side just kind of yeah. disappears for a bit. Did you get the feeling that a lot of it was scripted or was was it sort of drawn on personal experience and just articulated? Or Yeah, there was definitely moments, like, drawn from personal experience. And I think those are the moments that definitely shined. You could definitely tell what parts were being scripted uh, from just how the characters interacted with the sort of just that script. But apparently this was a... um, Everyone collaborated on this, from, Mm -hmm. like, the scripting to, like... Yeah, the individual actors. Like, I remember I remember this from the talkback. The individual actors worked on their costumes personally. Oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Oh. yeah. And this is uh, Kathleen Greenfield directing? Yes, Kathleen mm-hmm. Greenfield. Um, did she do much with uh, with mask work or costuming on too much in this production? Or uh, I, I think of Wizard of Oz and I think of, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. costumes and, you know. No, and there weren't any the masks. Like, yeah. And puppets, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. has done some really well, work Well, One Flying before. Monkey had a plush... Uh, stuffed toy banana <laughs> that he interacted with <laughs> but that that was it in terms of puppets okay. and i don't think there are any masks okay. mm-hmm. yeah great and when is that one running to uh it's running till uh november 2nd Right. And yeah, always worth the trip out there to see what oh, they yeah. And together. I always tell people to give extra time when you're yeah, going to William yeah, Head definitely. because you know there's traffic. You don't know how the traffic's going to back mm-hmm. up. You've got to go all the way to the very end of the road out mm-hmm. of chosen, and then you have to get through security. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you have to get through a squamalt. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> before all that, yep. yeah, no, yeah. with all the construction. The, oh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. on Mackenzie at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it does turn into quite a night. I mean. You know, from getting through the gate till the time you got back to the parking lot, what do you think? Was it like a three-hour Yeah, it was about three hours. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Long. That's it. It's a long night. You know, and um, I remember I stayed back on the talk back, and I talked with uh, Ka- Kathleen real quick. So I was at, like, the tail end of, mm. like, the line. Yeah. It's a great experience. If people have not been out to William Head to see mm-hmm. a show there, I encourage mm-hmm. everyone to go and take mm-hmm. that opportunity. It's, I think it's now the only prison theater company in Canada that's running. Um, I believe so. I could Mm -hmm. be wrong on that. If I am wrong, somebody let me know. Um, But it's a great opportunity that we have here to see Mm -hmm. that kind of theater done. Mm -hmm. And and over the years, like it's been running for decades, and the number of people from the creative community who've been all out there, it's Mm -hmm. just a a phenomenal number of folks. Yeah, no, it it really was. Yeah. Yeah. Go check it out. Great. Amanda, what did you think of Rocky Horror? It was great. Yeah, I quite enjoyed it. I had a couple of... Um, well, one one thing about it really bothered me, but I'll 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 talk about that later. So um, so a Tom Vaudeville's perennial production of Rocky Horror, uh, reading the program, uh, Griffin Lee, who plays Doctor Frankenfurter, is kind of the the anchor of this show. Mm-hmm. It says in here seven seventh time. Seven years. Have they done it that many? Times? I you know I'm not sure if they if he's done it with them for seven years, okay. but he says he's done it for seven years. Wow. And it's no surprise because he's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Like anyone who's seen it. Well, he's also done. Um, 
He's the lead in uh, Hedwig as well, mm-hmm. which um, oh, yeah. they they produced. I think we've and... all seen him too. Yeah, <laughs> and he's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And they're you know they're kind of similar characters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the plot of Rocky Horror, a couple of straight edge folks driving around in the countryside. Brad and Janet newly engaged. The car breaks down. They come upon this creepy castle. Have a really weird night. Basically, uh, <laughs> we all be there. <laughs> um, and it's you know this famous '70s counterculture musical that was turned into a film has become a cult classic. Um, if you live under a rock, you might not have heard of it. Um, I will say that I am very just a very casual fan. I've only seen the film a few times. I know some of the songs, and this was actually the first time I'd seen the musical done. Mm-hmm. Like I've you know you've gone to the like single like the singalongs and stuff. Um, did not know what most of the props in the prop bag were for. Um, but yeah, so anyway. And it was great. Sold out show at the Metro that I went to on Saturday. Um, very enthusiastic audience. It was it was a lot of fun. Um, ex- it looks like there were a lot of new cast members this year, like looking at the program. Uh, there were a couple people who had been in previous productions, but a lot of new faces. Um, quite a strong cast. Uh, there were definitely some highlights. I really like Grant Waters' riffraff. He was good. Mm-hmm. Um, his singing voice was great. Um, and he just had a, he was just really funny and creepy. And, uh, but I think my favorites were, uh, Magenta and Columbia. They mm-hmm. were really good. Uh, Emily Nimitz and, uh, Madeline, uh, Humani. Um, and they had a lot of like, they were, they were great singers and dancers. And they also had a lot of like really good chemistry on stage when it was just the two of them. I just wanted to see more of them. I also really liked the kind of the chorus that they had. They had these, um, the phantoms and the creeps that kind of acted as like, uh, in the, early in the show, they would be everything like they would, you know, they were the car and all the, all right. the other stuff. Ooh, and, fun. and then they were more of like filled out the chorus later on in the show. And they were a lot of fun. I love wow. when the chorus like actually like becomes a prop. Yeah, it was yeah. great. And I kind of had, yeah, they, they did more of that earlier in the show and I kind of wish they'd done a little bit more of it later. But um, my main complaint about this show was the lighting. Mm. They chose to do a spot follow on some of the really big ensemble numbers and I don't, don't understand why it was so distracting because... Um, director Britt Small is so great at this mm-hmm. type of show, like big dance numbers, lots of great choreography. Something going on in every corner. Yeah, of the exactly. Yeah. There's yeah. so much going on, uh, like everywhere. Um, and Sarah Murphy, who also played Janet, she was the choreographer, great choreography in mm-hmm. this show. And so like, for example, there's the big kind of number right before the first intermission of make you a man. And there's so much going on on the stage before that. And there's, things that are kind of hinting at stuff that's going to go on in the second act. And you've got Frank chasing Rocky around. And so, but the spotlight's trying to be on whoever's singing. And of course the spotlight isn't always catching up with that person, but yeah. And I was just like, and of course the house is also filled with kind of fake smoke and I'm sitting halfway through the house and all I can see is this giant beam of light, Mm. like cutting. And I was like, this is so like, I just wanted to have a really nicely well-lit stage. Like, the lighting was fine otherwise for the other numbers. Like, nothing wrong with the lighting. But, like, I don't know. That was just a weird choice. Like, mm. there were definitely some... There are some numbers in Rocky Horror where a fall spot is great. But 
the choice to use it in some of those bigger numbers was just very distracting yeah. for me. Yeah. The signature spotlight number in Rocky Horror is uh, I'm going home. Mm-hmm. There's even a, the scene where you know Frank wants the follow spot turned on. Yeah. And, and that's the big follow spot number. And it's a slow moving choreographed number where he's just It was sort of overused very, in the show. Yeah, like true. it was used it was oh. used in several numbers where it didn't need to be. I'm not sure why. Oh. Um, but it was distracting and it made it so I couldn't see th- uh, a bunch of stuff that was going on on stage. Yeah, that almost feels like an A.B. Hanover. Like that's so often used in the cabaret because yeah. the lighting is a little bit yeah, yeah it, lower it, tech. It, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't um, know. Actually, I remember Britt Small mentioning that uh, her, her stuff, Vaudeville, is very inspired by vaudeville cabaret Yeah, stuff, so, so I'm, I'm sure there was like a reason. There's like a, there was a thought process behind mm-hmm. it, but I just, as an audience member, it, it detracted. Yeah. It yeah. detracted from the show. It's interesting how things like lighting design and sound design, they have to be just as intentional and clear as any other aspect of a show. Mm-hmm. So... Because when it's slightly off, yeah. it's like, because you don't, you don't want to notice those things. Yeah, yeah. and it was all, yeah. and like, I got really hung up on it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is too bad, because like, everything else about the show was great. Hmm. Like, hmm. Uh, I really loved Jimbo's production design. Like, the set was awesome, and, and, um, and the costumes were great. And uh, uh, Mackenzie Lemire's makeup was excellent. Mm. The band was also really solid. Mm. The great mm. five-piece band that mm. also, like, they played the songs, the, did an excellent job playing the songs, but they also were doing, like, some, like, warm-up mm. tunes when people were coming in and oh, going to sit down. They, at one point, they were playing tequila. It was yeah. really funny. <laughs> so did tons of people dress up. Yeah, there were there were lots. I know, and that's like half the fun of shows like this. Like the mm-hmm. audience is just so into it. I'd say probably like at least a third of the audience was dressed up. Like so many people knew the show and were yelling out the cues yeah. and had the prop bags and were doing like it was fun. It's so fun. Like go see this show if you're even if you're not a huge Rocky Horror fan you'll have a blast it's an experience yeah it's an experience for sure and, and what like do you the, do with the toast I don't even know like <laughs> come on really no I wasn't paying attention to that. <laughs> I was asking because I actually don't know what to do with the toast what do you do with the toast Frank, Frank says a toast and he, he means like a champagne toast and everybody in the audience throws toast I just saw toast on the ground after so back in the day uh, back in the 80s I used to go to Rocky Horror the movie Rocky Horror Picture Show uh, I did over a hundred nights of it over the years and, you know, would go in yeah. outfits and everything like that. And we would arrive with two paper grocery bags filled with props. And so much of the show for us was spent going through our props bags and going, okay, what's coming up next? Yeah. And there'd be all this rustling and everything. saying, like, find the hot dog, find the hot dog. Oh, hot dog. Yeah. And you throw the hot dog. So. But we used to go with these two big bags of stuff. It was so great. I will say the balloon scared the shit out of me. <laughs> because it's the first one yeah and it was like ah! all of a sudden there's all these balloons anyway it was That's great funny. the the lighting was a minor well for me i got hung up on it yeah. but any other than that great solid show awesome cast great direction choreography music set it's great there's yes. a reason they do it every year and it sells out and mm-hmm. it's a good show so go see it halloween favorite runs till november 2nd november the metro. 2nd so yeah. still quite a bit of time yeah to see lots it. of time to see it right so then I went out to what has the potential to be another good Halloween show in town. Uh, I went to, um, once more with feeling, an unlicensed Buffy the Vampire Slayer parody, and it's intentionally spelled wrong, <laughs> Buffy, I-E, and Vampire with a Y <laughs> instead of Vampire, because they want to make it really clear 
that they are not licensed to do this production in any way, shape, or form. Please don't sue us. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, basically, if people know another cult classic, uh, season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, they do a musical episode. Uh, a demon comes to town, and it uh, makes everyone uh, perform in song and dance when they're supposed to just be talking. And it's a it's a classic Buffy episode, and it is hands down in the top five Buffy episodes. Uh, as you may be able to tell, I'm a big Buffy fan. <laughs> um, I know this series back and forth. I've seen the musical episode many, many times. So I was pretty excited to see it brought up on stage as a live production number. Uh, nobody has ever really done this, certainly in Victoria, before. Uh, so to have the chance to see it is pretty exciting. So this is a new, relatively young company in town called Starry Star Skies. They're specializing in uh, musicals. And uh, they decided they were going to do this production. But the TV episode, of course, because it's a TV episode, it's only 48 minutes long. So in order to justify doing a live version of it, they've had to uh, lengthen it. So they've doubled the length. And they've done that, and I'm sure skirted the licensing issue, by creating a wraparound storyline where there's now, much like Rocky Horror, where there's a narrator now who is on stage sort of hosting the event. And the setup is that this uh, person, the character name is Zentz, the actress, is Carolyn McKenzie DeCourt. Uh, she's acting as sort of host slash narrator, and she has a remote control, and it's almost like we're watching TV with her, and she'll pause the action every now and then and say something and then hit play, and then the, the episode will continue. So when it comes to the episode, we see the whole episode of the Buffy show uh, played out. And uh, it's just interrupted with this pausing and pausing and going and going thing. Um, which is kind of problematic because it, obviously it interrupts the flow of the show. Mm -hmm. Just when things get going, pause, some commentary, which may or may not have anything to do with Buffy. And certainly doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the, the impact of Buffy and pop culture. Or there's a lot of things that could be said there, but it's just... A lot of it is just random talk. Mm -hmm. um, and also in the random department, uh, they occasionally use uh, old TV ads to cover blackout scene changes. And those are clever when they use it, but they don't use it consistently. Oh. So, yeah, yeah, you know, when it comes up about 15 minutes into the show, you're like, oh, that's clever. How come we haven't been seeing it all the way through? And then it doesn't carry on all the way through. And you're like, well, let's go back to the TV ads. And then they come back, but then they fall out again. Mm. So it's kind of funny. I and have to ask, what kind of TV ads do they use? Oh, like just crazy stuff, like uh, old old TV ads from the 90s. So it would be like game ads and mm. uh, mini pops ads and things like the kind of TV That you would you have seen when you were watching time. Buffy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's Which is clever. Idea. No, no, yeah. it is a good yeah. idea. And that's my bottom line on this production. This this production full is of full ideas. of good ideas. <laughs> so I'm going to take it that this was more like a workshop staging, that they wanted to get the script up on its feet and see whether or not this would work as a live production. For the most part, when they're doing the episode, it works pretty well. There's some really good performances in here. Uh, the standout in the whole show, uh, Taryn Yanita, she plays the sing and dance and uh, demon uh, called Sweet. She is outstanding. When she comes on the stage, the whole production lifts up like, mm. you know, 10 points. Um, the guy who plays Spike, uh, he's really great, and he's Spike, the character, is such a fan favorite that as soon as he comes on stage, people are like, oh, it's Spike, yeah! <laughs> and he does a good job as Spike, according to Burt Wrigley. And then the other two people in the show that I really enjoyed, uh, the uh, the newly, or not newly, the fiancé couple of Xander and Anya, uh, John Hunwick and Victoria Callan, they do a really great song and dance routine called I'll Never Tell, and it's a highlight of the episode, and it's a highlight on the stage, too. 
Um, yeah, what, what, what brings this show down, director Tori Isaac, she's working in a very small space. This is at the Sunset Lab space underneath Valley Village. You've got 60 people in the audience. Uh, you've got a tiny, tiny stage area, quote-unquote mm. stage area, and then you've got a cast of 16. Oh, wow. So you've got lots of people in a small space and no real technical package. Like, there's mm. no lighting design. Things are up, things are down. Things are up, things are down. That's about it. Um, you could do a really great, fun, uh, low-tech lighting package for this that'll really bring the show to life. Uh, they could carry the TV commercials through. The other thing that I think gets in the way of a general audience for it is that if you are not a Buffy fan, like the core audience for this will be Buffy fans, but if you're not a Buffy fan, season six is a pretty pivotal point in the series, and this episode in particular, there's lots of stuff going on that needs context, because you're like, what's going on here? Because in this one, Buffy is just back from the dead, and she is really gloomy and really flat and really not a fun character to have as your central character of the episode. Whereas through the rest of the series, Buffy is like, she's quirky, mm. she's funny, she's got a weird sense of humor, she's killing demons. But in this one, she's really flattened down. And that's a tough thing for your central character in an episode. Mm -hmm. So everybody else, you know, has to work to, to bring the show to life. Um, but it's still, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it needs work, yes. But I hope they do remount it again. I hope they, they sit down and they look at it and tear it apart and say, okay, let's keep this, let's keep this, why don't we try this, why don't we try this? And they do it again because I think it does have good potential as another, you know, staple Halloween show in town. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you want to give that a try, Once More With Feeling runs next weekend as well. Um, whatever the hell next weekend is. So What's next weekend? 27th, 28th. 27th, 28th. Or 26th, 27th. 26th, 27th. Yeah. So if you want to check it out, it runs next weekend as well, October 26th and 27th down at the Sunset Labs. Great. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were just kind of chatting off or like online, I guess, in between shows. We have a little like group chat. Um, we don't just totally go dark in between getting together at the coffee table. And one thing that had kind of come up as a common theme um, was uh, there's just been a lot of chatter about stuff going on in the city around art spaces. And uh, one issue that came up in the news was uh, the issue around artist housing. Mm -hmm. So um, some folks who may have been following the story uh, came up as a news story. Um, Count City Councilor Jeremy Loveday put forward a motion around um, artist housing, and it kind of created this big kerfuffle in the media, and I think there was a lot of confusion around what it meant and what it was for. So I reached out to him to get some clarification around it. Um, and he sent me back a note and I just wanted to share what he said, he said about it. So this was what, like a week or two ago. Um, so the artist housing motion motion, it stemmed from the create Victoria arts and culture master plan, um, which folks may remember from a couple years ago, the city went through this big planning exercise, created this arts and culture master plan guides, how the city supports and invests in arts and, and culture. Um, so Jeremy says, I was one of the council liaisons to the creation of the Create Victoria master plan. And we heard loud and clear throughout the extensive public engagement process that making sure artists have affordable places to live and create is key to having a thriving arts and culture sec sector. And one of the key actions approved in 2017 of part of Create Victoria was to align the Victoria housing strategy and create Victoria to help spur the creation of affordable housing for artists. 
And so that was supposed to be done back in 2018, aligning those two strategies, mm. but it wasn't. And when I recognized it, I brought a motion to council to make sure that the city takes the action we promised that we would take. So that, so the motion had two parts to align our two policy documents, which is good governance and two to allow the city staff to be open to applications that seek to use existing policies to deliver affordable housing to artists. So I think when people heard about this motion to create affordable housing for artists, they thought that all of a sudden the city was going to start building right. <laughs> like yeah. special cheap houses for artists and everyone got really all up in arms about it. But commune. Yeah, like um but really it was just about aligning two policy documents and kind mm. of making affordable housing options open to artists as well as other folks. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I did I do I do find it kind of interesting that um people have such a yeah, I'm surprised there a backlash to, to yeah. that. I mean Well I, I did I did um I did ask Jeremy about that too, um, and he said, I had a few angry phone calls, but <laughs> almost everyone supported the idea once I had the chance to explain it to them, hmm. and yeah. uh, the motion passed at council by strong margin. The, like, what was behind that anger? Um, I, you know, the queue or something? Yeah. It sounds like a phrasing issue more than anything. Yeah, I think so. So, but I just, I remember reading, like... I just, you know, you like read the chatter online. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Don't read the comments. Yeah. And, and even some of the media coverage mm -hmm. of it. And, well, and yeah. It's Vancouver, we saw similar concerns with a lack of housing for artists that led to some kind of high profile artists basically breaking up with Vancouver very publicly mm -hmm. and saying, I'm moving to Halifax. I'm moving mm -hmm. to Victoria. I, I can't live <laughs> in this yeah. city anymore. Or I'm moving to the island. You know, it's. And it was because of the housing prices, which, you know, that's affecting so many people. Mm -hmm. Like, let's be honest, the land values are crazy and housing is challenging and, um, you know, and and it's it's also, we're going to talk about art spaces mm -hmm. as well and just the cost for things are more. But I, I don't see why talking about having policies that support artists to have affordable housing should detract from anyone else's yeah. right or need for it. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, policy is kind of one of the few levers that the city has. Like, we, we our city doesn't own a lot of... Like, Vancouver actually is a city that owns a lot more property mm -hmm. than Victoria mm -hmm. does. And they have created some co-ops and stuff yeah. to address this issue. Yeah, um, and another thing that Jeremy mentioned is uh, inter interesting the city to explore the creation of affordable live-work housing for mm. artists. So I think that kind of... Mm. Um, uh, kind of... Uh, looks at both of those things. Uh, he did mention a couple other things that um, he's going to be pushing for um, in the upcoming budget discussion. So uh, a new staff position to implement the Create Victoria plan mm. um, and a one-time funding of $100,000 uh, to establish a cultural infrastructure grant program and uh, a couple other things so um yeah i mean obviously like he's always this has always been a big issue for sure. him mm -hmm. and um mm -hmm. and then another thing that uh, i noticed as kind of online chatter i think a few of us were kind of talking about it too was the whole issue around the Vice club yeah mm -hmm. um which is a long-standing venue used in town yeah. mainly for uh, dances for bands for dance groups mm -hmm. uh, together as well uh, it's been used as a fringe venue before though hasn't yep. it yeah well, mm -hmm. years ago yeah say mm -hmm. yeah um but yeah it's very popular well oh, i was thinking of space. the polish the white eagle hall i think oh the one i was thinking of. Yeah, yeah yeah 
Uh, but Edelweiss is a, is a well-loved space down in James Bay. Uh, it's used by choirs, it's used by all sorts of people. And uh, the issue there is that uh, the official community plan has uh, changed. Maybe yeah, it was revised. It's yeah. been revised, and their property taxes have gone up 300%. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, you know, obviously a difficult thing for a group to have to deal yeah. with. Yeah, and I guess that's because how property taxes work is that properties get taxed based on their potential use, mm-hmm. not on their actual use. Sure. So, yeah, so BC Assessment looks at what, okay, well, the official community plan says, okay, this property could be used for this, so we're going to tax you at what that could be used yeah. for. And when you see the development that's going on in James Bay, as well yeah. as across Victoria as a yeah. whole, you can see why that happens. But- to me, that raises the issue. Well, there are that's what community halls are for. They're yeah. not meant for best use. They're yeah. meant to be community halls. Yeah, but I live in Fernwood where we had Orange Hall yeah. for a hundred odd yeah. years, and it was used every single day by the Capoeira groups, by yoga groups, mm-hmm. by the Bluegrass Club, by the local witch community. Like mm-hmm. we were all using Orange Hall, and then the it got sold off as a piece of property. And it got turned into a high-end home and now goes for, you know, like $1.3 yeah. well, million really, dollars, and the community has lost the use of that yeah. space. And that's really because the land itself needs to be either zoned or put in a trust yeah. to not have that yeah. best use attached to it, to just be used for what the community intends it for. And if it's for community events, it's for if it's for the Edelweiss Club or if it's for, you know, an art center or a senior center, then it should... You know, yeah. The taxes should reflect that because otherwise, it's, you're basically it's a way to evict people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. it puts a development target on their back, yeah. and that's Jeremy brought that up too. So he, he brought him and um, Councillor Isaac brought a motion forward to downzone the the that piece of property so that their tax bill goes down. Mm. Um, it's gonna it's tabled to a further discussion at a future council meeting. So um, mm. we'll see where that goes, but. Um, he says, um, you know, they're they're hopeful that it's. He says it's not a solution for every cultural space, but it could be something yeah. that is used if that happens to other nonprofits. It could be a, yeah. a like. So yeah, it's. We yeah. don't want to lose those spaces. I mean, we don't no. want to. The more the city has, like one of the fastest growing densities, in you know the area. I think it's mm. second to Langford or something. A lot yeah. of census. People are going to be living in smaller spaces. There's more people. Like, you don't want to lose your cultural community Or if you do, well. okay, so if you do end up developing that space, whatever, like, make sure there's a clause in there where the community space is preserved. Like, or something, mm-hmm. right? Like. I mean, let's go back to when uh, Interpreter was trying to find a home for Metro Theatre. And uh, before it was, you know, before it was established at the back of the VCM there, uh, they had a, they were investigating something with number of developers over the years, and they were like, yeah, okay, we'll build our new building, we'll put a theater space in the lobby, and then, then that would all fall yeah, apart. Yeah, because it's not, it doesn't make any money. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like, Even though it adds to vibrancy and it guarantees yeah. arts spaces in the city. Um, I think this is, you know, for pros or cons of what's <laughs> happening with uh, Vancouver Island School of Art with their new building, uh, you know, I know the neighborhood is concerned about gentrification, but at least it's a new development going in where there will be a dedicated art space. Yeah. And it sounds like some of the, I don't know about all, but some of the rental spaces above the building yeah. uh, are going to be uh, right of first refusal to artists. Yeah, yeah. So that'll be interesting. I, I haven't gotten any, like I, I was reading that one of them is going to be for an artist in residence, yeah. but I don't know if more than that will yeah. be. Or And then the one yeah. you were referring to earlier, the... Um, 
the live workspaces for artists. So that's currently being developed up in the Burnside area, oh, Mayfair okay. Mall. And there's, I think there's going to be about six uh, live workspaces for artists going to go into that. That's great. So that is great. Mm -hmm. I, it's all part of the same issue. Like we are a cultural capital. We are known for our arts community. And people start getting concerned about it when performance spaces vanish. And mm -hmm. we've seen this with the live music scene over the years. Mm -hmm. We've seen this with mm -hmm. art spaces over the years. But it's the same thing. Like if artists cannot afford to live here, they can't afford to create work here. If visual artists can't afford to have studio space here, how are they going to create the work that fills the galleries? I, I feel like the performance space is kind of like that's when the like primary apex predator dies mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. Like it's the it's like the that's, that's almost yeah, yeah that's yeah. like the that's like we're too late at that point like th this is like when we're losing studio space and like places to live that's when we need to be mm -hmm. worried like mm -hmm. that's I was walking past. It was, it was a great, great yeah, yeah. I was walking past the downtown library, and they were currently in the process of redeveloping that whole the two, three, four uh, floors on top of the library there, the big brick building that's right mm -hmm. in Broughton and mm -hmm. uh, Blanchard. And yes. I was looking at it, and it's like, well, this is just going to be more offices. Like, does the city need more office space? Like, how about developing these into live work spaces for artists? Like, mm -hmm. connecting it to the library and making it. A oh yeah, place. that'd be a great. Yeah, I would love to see attachment. more of that. Well, the library needs a new library first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. a whole other conversation. Yes, I agree. Tear yeah. down the parkade or yeah. put, put it in there. Yeah, the library, that the library, library needs yeah. to be le less right downtown. Yeah. Yeah. My neighborhood needs a freaking yeah. library. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, I've said it before, I'll say it podcast. again. The Sears space at Hillside Mall. It's a huge space that yeah. could be turned into all sorts of things. That could be housing. That could be studio space. That could be performance space. Yeah. That could be a big library. Yeah, that's space when as you well. need to start um, partnering with the private sector. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Sears micro lofts. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, and, uh, we already have the beds. Yeah. Sears still and an escalator. Not anymore. That's why the space is empty. No, I just had a flashback. Where it was just like, wait, it's not a thing, is yeah. it? <laughs> but we saw this in Vancouver with the Woodward space downstairs town which is now part of the sfu space and yeah. is being turned into a performance space so the potential is there yeah yeah so. we've just got to get creative yeah mm -hmm. huh. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah right. on that note so we'll be following those things um yeah i am it, you know i have mi mixed feelings about the visa development because it's in my neighborhood yeah. and mm -hmm. i mean development's coming to this neighborhood it has to we're just kind of next on the on the gentrification creep northward so um, yeah, you're right. At least it's something that uh, something that has a cultural amenity in it. Yeah. So that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah so, well, uh, the cultural onslaught continues into October, um, and we're all catching stuff in the next couple weeks. Yeah, why don't we just go around the table and see what people are going to I get to, to actually go to opening night of the Belfry. Uh, I'm very excited to see Cat Sandler's Bang Bang mm -hmm. on the 31st. It's going to be... I didn't get to see Mustard. Mm -hmm. I know there were mixed feelings about it around this table. <laughs> it was fantastic. Love it. <laughs> I had problems with it. Yeah. So I will uh, I'll be there on the 31st. So I'm looking for... And then I'm going to go see Righteous Rainbows at Lucky right after. I'm doing a doubleheader. That's crazy. This is what go big or go My home. kid's not here, so I... Uh, I get to freedom. Yeah, <laughs> I get to go out. So. Brianna, what are you going to go see? Let's see. Um, I'm going to go see Bang Bang on the seventh with my with my playwriting class. Ooh. Ooh. 
Uh, we, we actually heard it on a podcast, which I think is sponsored by CBC. I forget mm. what it's called off the top of my head. But I'm also going to go see Othello on the 9th. Great. And I'm very excited to see Othello. I haven't actually seen Othello hmm. or read it. It'll be interesting to see what they do with it. Yeah. Uh, Brian Richmond directing that one up at the Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's from the 7th to the 23rd, I think. Yeah. And the, the junior Richmond, Jacob, is also directing a show coming up. Oh. Um, Blue Bridge on October 24th is opening their 39 Steps, which I think is a whodunit satire on Hitchcock's work. Have you never seen Ooh. it? I've never seen it, oh, so it's my first. And the cast is what I'm super yeah. excited yeah. about. Amanda Listman and Chris Mackey and Rob Peter Jr. So yeah. it's, you know, I, hard I to know go wrong. About it. Hard, hard to, to go, go wrong. wrong. Yeah, it's It'll a super fun show. Uh, it was, uh, Lang Court did it a few years ago. Uh, Shemanis did it a few years ago as well. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, when it hit Broadway, it was a super, a big hit there. And you, you'll just have a great time. Yeah. Oh, nice. yeah. I do whenever I see it. Well, the whole cast, but Chris Mackey. There's no I know. Yeah. He's just such a delight. He is. So. Yeah. And he isn't on stage very much these days. So it's always a treat to see him. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be on Melanie's date for that show. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably go out to see some other stuff. But, um... Wanted to give a little bit of a shout out to Missing at Pacific Opera Victoria's Bauman Center on November 1st and 2nd. A really interesting opera about uh, murdered and missing Indigenous women. Wait, is that by Marie Clements? By Marie Clements, yeah. Clements, the um, filmmaker and playwright and music by Brian Current. And it's in English and Gitsan with English surtitles and is an incredibly, you know, moving um, and beautiful, beautiful show. I saw it last year, so I'm not sure who if the cast is the same, but um, yeah, it's an incredible, incredible. Yeah, one. I wonder if they'll change it much yeah. for this. I, yeah, certainly some of them are the same. I know uh, Marion Newman's. Yeah, back and Marion so. Newman was in um, Il Tritico as well, oh, oh, and nice. I saw Rosella Nichols, who was the one of the leads in Missing at the show. So I'm guessing she's in town mm-hmm. rehearsing mm-hmm. for that. Sure. But, yeah. Uh, also in the classical line, I'll give a shout out to Kaleidoscope Theatre. Their next production is Vivaldi's Ring of Mystery. Uh, children's Theatre, that's having November 1st to 3rd, and Kaleidoscope is always very reliable for theatre for young audiences. So I mean, if you've got kids and you want to check that out, see what's going on with Vivaldi. And then get the young folk. Yeah, and anyone going to the sold-out Jeremy Dutcher show this week? I am. <laughs> going to go see him. I missed him at uh, the Bauman Center last year. So Yeah. And, I mean, there's tons of great music coming up. Sloan, Danny Michelle, Bruce Coburn, Current Swell, City and Color, Hoxley Workman, uh, Serena Ryder. They're all coming to town in the next month. So. Amazing. November is very busy for an arts, for the arts scene. We like, say that every time we sit around this <laughs> September is busy. March yeah. is busy. Well, at least with November, I'll have the reading break, so. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Might be able to see stuff. So I think we're, this will be a bit of a long podcast, but that's okay. We have lots to say. Hope you're still with us. Yeah. Um, so if you, uh, thanks for listening. If you have any feedback, uh, check the program, yyj at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Check the Program. Uh, and until next time, I'm Amanda Farrell I'm Brianna Bach. I'm Melanie Trumpeter. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm John Throwfall. And don't forget to check, check, check the program. The greatest show. Check the program. The greatest show you know. Check the program. Check the program. Check the program. It's called Check the Program. Check the program. Yeah. Check the program. The greatest show that you know. Program. Check the program. Check the program. Check the program. Check the program. Yeah.